it's fall is my favorite time of year and it's just getting started but I just see the tops of the trees as they come in starting to turn red just a little bit and the the corn turning and I feel like man this is this is my favorite I I love being able to make that drive and it's interesting I think about um, you, you get to this time of the year and I think about postcards um, I don't know if you think about postcards, nobody sends postcards anymore, but think about this building and what a church looks like. The white church in the fall and the, and the traditional look and nobody takes, like I said, nobody sends postcards anymore. I guess we, would, we could take a picture with this phone of this church and you could have not a postcard, but a meme that everybody shares on Facebook, right? Because no one needs to send anything in the mail anymore. But it got me to thinking about, okay, what does church look like? And this is a pretty traditional white church building. Or you think about the cathedrals in Europe or the Sugar Grove campus, I guess, contemporary maybe, but it's 30 years old, that building, even now. Um, I remember when it was built. But... Church is more than the buildings. What the church looks like is more than the things that we come to gather in. Right? Churches meet in big and small places, in traditional and contemporary buildings, in, in storefronts, and even pubs. And today we're going back to our study of Acts, and we're looking at what does the church look like, the first century church, the, the called out ones, the body of Christ, not a building, but a people. More than one place or time, the church belongs to Jesus. It is because of him everlasting, and it's in the pages of Acts that we're going to see once again not just our own history, as important as it is for us to understand our own history, but in the book of Acts, we see who God calls us to be as his church. And today we're going to move into a transition period. We looked at the first 12 chapters of Acts under the, the title, Unfinished. And today we start chapter 13 under the title, Unstoppable. And so we're at this transition point in the book of Acts. And so if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 13. And we're going to read the first 13 verses today. Now Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Mananian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed there from, Cyp- from there to Cyprus. When they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God into the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled throughout the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer 
and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you, and you're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately in the midst, the mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. But the proconsul saw what had happened, believed, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church. We thank you for the ability to see and hear of you through your word and through the actions of your church. I pray that this morning we would see just a little more clearly that we would understand who you are and who you want us to be through the story of your church in Acts. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Since it's been a while, since we've been in Acts, first I want us to take a quick review, an overview of, if you will, of the first 12 chapters of the book. It's a flyover to get us reacclimated and help us remember where we've been and catch a glimpse of what this fledgling church was all about. And this was the unfinished work, the creation of the church. And the first thing we see in Acts chapter 1 and 2, as we quickly review, is that the church is produced by the Holy Spirit. The church is not, in the early days, sophisticated. It doesn't have structure or buildings. There's no New Testament. And it is, in today's terminology, something like a startup. Except, no human being started it. Jesus is raised in the first four verses of chapter 1. He ascends. And in chapter 1, verse 2, we see that something about the true nature of the church. We are told that Jesus was uh, taken up into heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit. The church is born out of Jesus' teachings as he gives them to the, the apostles, and it is born through the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus promises the Holy Spirit again. Remember, he already promised that the Comforter would come in the upper room before he was crucified. And in chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, we hear the sound of rushing wind and tongues of fire above the heads of those gathered. And the church is not a human institution, even though it is made up of us, who are often all too human. It is the people of God called by Him to bear witness to Jesus throughout the world. And that's exactly what we see begin to happen in the book of Acts. 
The Holy Spirit comes and grants this supernatural gift in chapter 2 where people from all over the Mediterranean world, the Roman world, hear the message about Jesus in their own languages. And there in chapter 2, in verse 14, we begin to see the proclamation of the good news in both word and deed. Peter preaches to the people of Jerusalem. It's the festival of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, this national pilgrimage festival where Jews from all over the Roman world come together and Jerusalem is packed. And Peter preaches an amazing sermon. Boldly, he proclaims Jesus without reservation. He calls the people and the leaders of the Jews, his people, out for what they have done. And this church, early church, in the first days is almost exclusively Jewish. But it is also unbelievably diverse. Look at what chapter 2, verses 5 to 7 says about Jerusalem. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they had heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard in his own language, his own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Ferga, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. I love this picture of the early church because it shows that from the very first day of the church that it never belonged to one group of people, one culture, one ethnicity. The church has always been for everyone. But Peter does more than just preach boldly. What does he do? He shows compassion. And in in the beginning of chapter 3, he heals a lame beggar at the temple. And we see that from the very beginning in the church, the spiritual world and the physical world are never separate. They occupy the same space. I don't think it is at all an accident that this healing takes place at the temple. Peter knew that part of loving God was loving others. And he knew that he loved others well when he loved God first. He didn't, and we can't separate those two things. And in chapter 4, it costs Peter a trip before the council where he preaches again, and he and John are threatened. And when they finish, they immediately go back to the church to report what has happened, and they all begin praying for courage in chapter 4. We see this in chapter 4, verse 23 and following. And I think it's really interesting that it's the immediate response of the church. It's not a, well, do you think we should pray? They just do. And I'm convicted by this particular small passage because, honestly, 
I don't pray by default the way they seem to. I tend to look for a way to fix whatever the situation is, or I complain that it's unfair, or that, well, let's just say I'm good at deflecting from the real need, which is prayer. And it's interesting to me that if we look at this passage briefly, they have a very interesting pattern, starting in verse 24. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and all of the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what, what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It's inter- this prayer amazes me. They start with who God is. They quote Scripture, keeping their hearts in line with God's heart, not simply saying, God, fix what I want to fix. They quote Scripture directly tied to their situation, which means they have to know that Scripture in order to quote it. Right? They recognize that even the hardships that Jesus faced at the hands of evil men was not beyond God's power and plan. They don't ask for deliverance. They don't say, please God, keep us safe. They pray for courage, for boldness, and power. Not for their own glory, but for God's glory, so that others might come to Christ. And then, in verse, 20, or verse 31, God responds in power. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This prayer, like the teaching of Peter before it, was not simply pious positioning. It reflected hearts set on God. And then immediately following this prayer, we see in chapter 4 that they hold their possessions together in common. It sounds suspicious to us. Un-American, possibly communist. We worry that somebody's going to force us to give up something that we don't want to give up, right? And that's not what's going on here at all. I love the passage that we heard this morning from 1 Chronicles 29. Because that's what's going on here. The church recognized that what they had was a gift from God to begin with. They held things together in common to care for one another because they recognized that that is what God calls us to do. Because Christians love God and love one another. And that means that when there are needs... We care for one another. We take care of one another. 
We don't force one another, but we, because we are God's, will do this for one another. But as good as the picture is up to this point, all is not well. And in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and 6, 1 to 7, we see that there are problems within. Within the church. In chapter 5, we hear the familiar story of Ananias and Sapphira. And in chapter 6, there is a problem distributing food. Holding all things together in common didn't last long. Not because it's a bad idea, but because we're fallen people. Ananias and his wife wanted the spiritual reputation without a true heart for God. The Greek-speaking widows were being discriminated against, and it was not so long after Pentecost. Whether by design, whether by default, we still mess things up in the church. There's a phrase that I love that says, if you find a perfect church, don't go there because you'll mess it up. And it's true. We're all broken. And sometimes we do evil because we're selfish and we want to. And sometimes we do evil because we put together structures that have what I call the law of unintended consequences. We don't mean to do bad things, but we do by the things that we create. And we need to be honest about these things. And we need to repent of them when we are confronted by them. And we need to confront them and bring them out into the light. The people of God do horrible things. And when we do, it tarnishes God's reputation and ours. And I believe that's at least part of the reason why Ananias and Sapphira are struck down. Look, some of the Puritans in this country whose theology was great in some ways, were full of truth, were also unrepentant slaveholders and racists. And they were wrong. It was sinful. In the past few months, in an evangelical megachurch in our backyard, there have been horrible accusations of sexual impropriety. And in the Roman Catholic Church, right now, there is again a crisis at the highest levels. Bishops and cardinals. And the abuse of people in the pews from children to seminarians. And it is awful. And these are gross sins within the church. And we, as the people of God, need to root them out and expose them to the cleansing light of the sun and honestly, forthrightly, and with contrite hearts, admit the problems. And sometimes we create situations and structures that prey upon people, no matter how much it's unintentional. And we need to fix those too. God calls us He calls our sins to task. And he expects us to deal with them. And we see this in the first days of the church. But our problems are not simply from within. They are also from without. And in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we see that persecution happens early. Right? We see 
that being bold, proclaiming Christ, comes with a cost. It invites persecution, and it's not a surprise. Jesus told us it would. In chapter 5, Peter and John are arrested not once, but twice. They're put in jail and beaten. Stephen becomes the first martyr. In this past weeks, we've seen in Africa persecution of Christians. We've seen in China that the state closes the largest church and is banning crosses and Bibles in ways that they haven't done in years. And we are worried about the inconveniences that we face here. Stephen preached the gospel boldly just before he was killed. Persecution is real. It's not something that we seek out, but neither is it something that we should compromise in the face of to avoid. And this persecution from chapter 6 to chapter 8 leads to premonitions of change in chapter 8, verse 4 and following. The church is scattered beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. It's not by choice. But God's plan to spread the gospel can use any circumstance. And Philip preaches in Samaria and then to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the church is becoming less centralized. And Saul is converted on the road to Damascus in chapter 9, confounding everyone. The persecutor becomes one of them. And Peter is given a mission to the Gentiles, a vision. He goes to the house of Cornelius. Jews did not do this. It was against the rules. Cornelius was a pagan and a centurion in an occupying army. And God shows Peter that the church is bigger than he thought. Gentiles too, us, we can meet God in Jesus. They too, we get to receive the Holy Spirit and are not second-class believers. And that wasn't easy for the Jewish believers to accept, but they did. And in chapter 11, we're told of the church in Antioch in Syria that we read about this morning. A church of Jews and Gentiles together, and Barnabas, a Levite Jew from the island of Cyprus, is sent to help them, and he seeks out Saul, and they minister there for a year. And it was this church that gave us our name as Christians. And it was this church who raised money for the poor in Jerusalem. And in chapter 12, reality sets in. James is killed by Herod, and Peter is imprisoned, and Herod dies at the hand of God. And meanwhile, the word of God continues to spread, and Barnabas and Saul return to Antioch with John Mark. And that's where we pick up this morning in 13.1. We move from an unfinished work to the unexpected, And the church at Antioch commissions God's chosen for a new phase. To this point, almost everything has been centered on the church in Jerusalem. And even the push into Judea and Samaria comes out from that point. It makes sense. That's where the apostles are. It's where the triumphal entry 
and Jesus last week occurred where the trial and crucifixion happened, where the resurrection occurred. It's the base of operations. But as we've seen, the premonitions of change were there, and still, it's a little more than surprising that it's the church at Antioch that becomes the significant player in the spread of the gospel around the Roman world. God chooses unexpected things to remind us of who he is and what he's up to. He didn't choose Peter or John. He didn't choose any of the other remaining 12. He didn't choose the Jerusalem church. It wasn't the big place. He chose a church not in Israel. He chose men who were not part of that inner circle to do his will. And he reminds us in Acts 13 that he doesn't need the powerful or the strong. He doesn't need the structures that we put into place. He's going to choose who he will choose. And he is going to show himself to be strong precisely in our weaknesses. And so we see a diverse body that is unified in the Spirit. It is often said that 9 a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated time and place in America. Our churches, more often than not, are filled with people who look like us and talk like us and think like us. It's the way it is. It's more than simply race, though it's certainly that. It's also about politics and economics and a host of other issues. But look at chapter 13, verse 1. There are five men listed as prophets and teachers, and they couldn't be more different from one another. Barnabas is, as we've seen, Jewish, a Levite, and wealthy from Cyprus. Simeon called Niger, or possibly the black man. That's what it means. It's a Latin word meaning black. Which means that not only is he African, he is probably not North African. And we need to understand that the earliest church, the people in it didn't look like me. Reggie, they looked like you. And they looked like Arabs, because that's who they were. And they looked like olive-complected Mediterranean people. And Lucius is from Cyrene, again, a Latin name, not Jewish. Cyrene was the capital of Libya. He's possibly one of the preachers who brought the gospel to Antioch in the first place. Then there's Menaean. And this is an interesting one. He's brought up with Herod, who just killed James, who killed John the Baptist the son of Herod the Great, who presided over Jesus' trials, at least one of them. Likely, Menean was brought into Herod's house when he was very young, because this was a common practice, bring in someone to be a foster brother. And many people believe that the reason why Luke understands what Herod Antipas was up to is because he talked to Menean. Who would have known him? And then you see Saul the Pharisee persecutor of the church who is miraculously converted. These are the leaders of the church in Antioch. 
And as far as we can tell, none of them were part of that 120 group, the direct disciples of Jesus. They're a mishmash of ethnicities and socioeconomic backgrounds and places in the Mediterranean world. They are unexpected leaders, an unexpected group, but they are the example to us of what the church ought to look like. They're unified in the Spirit of God, united in their belief, and their calling as prophets and teachers, and they are united in worship. They don't let their differences, and Luke went to great pains to show their differences, get in the way. And many people believe that Acts wrote, or Luke wrote Acts the way that he wrote it, including the names and the places and the people that he did when he wrote to Theophilus, to show him and others that Christianity was not anti-Roman, that it was not simply Jewish, but that Christianity was for everyone. Christians, as the Antiochian church was first called, was for everyone. And our faith transcends our ethnicities and our cultures and our socioeconomic status and our national boundaries It's more important than all of these things. Our common heritage of faith has to come first. That's what we see in Acts 13. And we see also a church dependent on God. In verse 2, we see that these leaders, this church, was clearly dependent on God in every way while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And so after they had fasted and prayed, or perhaps after more fasting and prayer, the point is we see a church that is not focused on itself. It's not focused on budgets or buildings or safety or a host of other things that may be important. They were focused on Christ. They were dependent on God. And it's when we put God first that life comes into proper focus for us that things get put into their proper places. It's then and only then that we hear God speak to us. And when we put other things before God, even good things, we don't hear from God in the same way. Notice that it is in this place of dependence on God that the Holy Spirit makes clear, makes a strong call to the church. And notice, too, that it's the whole church that hears from God. Paul and Barnabas don't hear from God on their own with no input or confirmation from the church. This is a church united in their dependence on God. Because they hear from Him, they deploy their best for God's mission. The Holy Spirit tells them, Set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That is a scary thing to hear. How are we going to function without these two? What are we going to do? I mean, Barnabas was sent here from Jerusalem to help us out. We need him. I can hear that. I, can th- I thought that way. Recently, in Sugar Grove, we sent Pastor Steve from a vibrant and growing ministry to Plano. 
he had not been in the position that long. And he was doing great things. And it was a hard thing for him to move there. But you know what? He was the right person at the right time for the right place. That's where God was moving. It's not like Barnabas and Paul really, really wanted to go somewhere else. Pastor Steve was not looking, hey, can I get out of Sugar Grove, please? That's not what was going on. It's not that they wanted an adventure or were operating from what they thought they should do. The Holy Spirit set them apart for a specific mission. Go to the Gentiles. And the church at Antioch heard it. They prayed. They fasted. They laid hands on these men, commissioning them and sending them. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, Paul tells Timothy, Hey, don't lay hands on a prospective leader too quickly. That's not what happened. And F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on Acts, says it's perhaps worth noting that the two men who were to be released for what would nowadays be called missionary service overseas were the two most eminent and gifted leaders in the church. And so we have to ask ourselves, are we looking to raise up leaders from within, not just leaders, but ministers whom we are willing to send out? Are we willing to spend the time and energy investing in them to send them out from us? We should be. Antioch did. At Village, we talk about discovering, developing, and deploying disciples. And it's not just a slogan. That's what's modeled here for us in Acts 13. And it's here that we begin to see the unstoppable nature of the church. Paul and Barnabas show this. They're unstoppable. They confront false teaching with the good news. God takes this unfinished work in an unexpected direction and uses unexpected people to be his unstoppable force no matter where they go. And this is where we get into the heart of today's story. First, we need to understand that Paul and Barnabas were willing to go. They left everything and everyone behind. They were called, but they were also willing. And sometimes we aren't. We find excuses. In verse 4, they were called by the Holy Spirit and they got on the boat. When we're called and confirmed by the church, it's our responsibility to be willing to follow through and not be distracted by what we want or what is comfortable or safe. Paul and Barnabas went. And then they worked in the trenches. Notice that it wasn't a cushy gig. It wasn't the spotlight. They got to work where the people who needed them were. Cyprus had a significant Jewish population. Caesar gave Herod the great copper mines in Cyprus. And the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees tells us that there are Jewish settlements there. Acts 11 mentions Christians taking refuge in Antioch. And as we've seen, Barnabas is from there. So what did they do? Paul and Barnabas went to where they knew people were who were open to the gospel. Places they had connections with. That's where they started. They went to the common people and started on the eastern end of Cyprus and worked their way west. 
they went to the synagogues. To the people open to hearing about God, they preached the good news. They didn't start with people who were closed. They started ministering to people in places where they were at. In the everyday lives they led. It's not glamorous. We don't even know how successful it was. But it was necessary. And that's where we start. And then we wait for opportunity. At the right time, God gives Paul and Barnabas an opportunity. They didn't seek it out, but they were available when it came. I think that Luke is showing us an example of God's economy here. When we're faithful in little, we'll be given more. This is Jesus' parable in Matthew 25. And no doubt, their mission had been known. I mean, Cyprus is not that big of a place. It's about 90 miles from where they got off the boat to the city of Paphos in verse 6. That's the Roman capital. There, Paul and Barnabas meet two men at a crossroads. Sergius Paulus is the proconsul, the governor of Cyprus. He's under the authority of the Roman Senate. And it seems that probably this man, Sergius Paulus, was a member of an influential Roman family. Among his entourage was a Jewish sorcerer. The historian Josephus tells us that Jewish sorcerers had a tendency to attach themselves to rulers. The Romans were superstitious, you see, and they wanted a divine edge wherever they could get it. The Jews had a reputation for spirituality and possibly, probably, Bar-Jesus, as, as he's called, was one of these kind of court seers who uses a mixture of pseudoscience and astrology and dreams to advise this intelligent man, we're told, Sergius Paulus. So Sergius Paulus invites Paul and Barnabas to visit because he wants to hear the word of God. It's an important reminder. When we are given an opportunity, we need to take it. And we need to remember that it's not just about taking it to people we like. Think about it. Sergius Paulus is a politician. Probably not an honest one. Not one that good Christians from that day would want to have been associated with. Even worse, he consorted with heretics. A false teacher. And yet, Barnabas and Saul went. Look, pick your politician. I don't care who they are. I don't care which side of the aisle. I don't care if they're a big name or a small name. Guess what? They're going to have skeletons in their closet. They're going to be people that good Christians don't want to be associated with. Pick a celebrity. Justin Bieber is famously Christian. Whatever that means talks about God, goes to church sometimes. And i got to be honest with you, I am immediately skeptical of all politicians and celebrities who claim anything about God. If you're a politician, my default kind of way of looking at you is you have true strikes and you are halfway through the third strike. Right? That's kind of the way I look at it. And in this culture, when I look at celebrities who talk about God, my immediate thought is, okay, how are you trying to use God, and why should I buy into your cult of personality? We are a celebrity-obsessed culture, and my default is to say, I want nothing to do with these types. But Paul and Barnabas remind me that sometimes you got to go to the Weasley people, too. 
They go into a situation that could be judged for all sorts of reasons. And they preach the gospel to two men who need to hear it. One is spiritually seeking, and he keeps suspect company, and the other has abandoned his heritage and the truth for money and power. And Paul and Barnabas go to them. And there they withstand opposition. Bar-Jesus is also called Elimaeus or sorcerer. Probably he's a seer who, complains, who, who claims to interpret dreams and use magic to help. And he is not happy about Paul and Barnabas being there. He does not want the gravy train to end, right? He does not want his position of power and authority to slip from his grasp. But Paul is having none of it. He is forceful in his rebuke, and he's specific. And he's not doing it on his own power. The Holy Spirit fills Paul, we're told, and he gives him the right words to say and the approach to take. And notice that Paul's rebuke goes to bar Jesus, not to Sergius Paulus, even though he's arguably wrong too. And this is the pattern throughout Scripture. It's the false teachers. It's the religious people leading others astray who get the harshest condemnation. He does not pull his punches. He calls Bar-Jesus a deceit and a fraud. And the name Bar-Jesus means son of Joshua, son of Yeshua, son of salvation. And what does Paul call him? Son of the devil. Paul uses his very name against him. And even here, he doesn't simply condemn He gives him an opportunity to repent. You know how we know this? We know this in a couple of ways. John the Baptist quoted Scripture in Luke 3 saying, Prepare the way for the Lord, make the path straight. And Paul says to Bar-Jesus in a way that a Jew would definitely understand, you are doing the opposite of this. And when he pronounces judgment on him, he says, you're going to be blind for a time. And that is a statement of mercy, not of justice. Because according to the law, the punishment for a false prophet was death. Bar-Jesus is blinded, a physical manifestation of his own spiritual blindness and the path that he's leading Sergius Paulus down. And it's at this moment that Luke makes a switch and he starts to call Saul, Paul. It hadn't happened before this. And it's at this point where we also see a switch from Barnabas and Saul to Paul and Barnabas. And scholars debate the significance, but likely there's a couple of things working here. Paul is his official Roman last name. Paulus. The same as Sergius Paulus. It's not that they're related, they're probably not, but there's a shift here in saying who is Paul and where is he going and what is he going to be doing. Here we begin to see who Paul is going to become, the unstoppable force that he is at work proclaiming. And here is a pattern that we should both expect and follow. When we do God's work, when we follow Christ, we will be opposed. It's not a question of if. The question is how and when. 
And are we going to be in tune enough with God, filled enough with the Spirit to stand strong, to face opposition head on? Are we willing? And at the same time, we have to remember to be gentle with those who need to be gentle. Sergius Paulus was wrong in his approach in the company he kept. But Paul did not condemn him. He worked for his salvation. He never forgot his mission. He didn't get sidetracked by justifiable righteous indignation. He didn't allow himself to become bitter and opposed to those who needed God. He opposed the one who claimed to speak for God, but did not, in fact, do so. And finally, we get to see God at work. We get to watch what God does when we do these things. Because Paul and Barnabas went and worked because they waited on God and withstood opposition, they saw God work. Immediately, Bar-Jesus is blinded. Perhaps he was given the time so that he had a chance to repent. But also, Sergius Paulus believes. And notice that the sign might have been the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, but it was the teaching about Jesus that made the change. And that's what it's all truly about. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we get to be with God. It's not about the prestige or the power. It's not about the future. It's about the here and now. Being with God. And as we've seen through this flyby in Acts, it's certainly not about our safety or our comfort. It's all about Jesus. Then church becomes unstoppable when and only when we take up that unfinished work. When we rely on the Holy Spirit, connecting with God in a way that we are truly dying to self and living to Christ. So as we close, as something of a benediction, I want to read the words of Paul, this, new, this instrument to build a church, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and following. And this is what Paul says, and I think it is a challenge to us. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of the Lord, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that he might so that you may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his Son he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Amen.